Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're tuning in for another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast and video chat with writers and authors where we chat about their books, their work, their creative process, and whatever else happens to come up in conversation. Today, our guest is Christine Strobel, who recently penned and published her incredible memoir, Stuffing Cotton. Her sons were born with an extremely rare disease called recessive dystrophic epidermoliosis bullosa. It is the most horrific disease that you have never heard of. In this book, Christine chronicles how this unimaginable diagnosis changed their lives and their faith. So welcome to the podcast, Christine. Oh, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I know. And, you know, it's um, it's such an honor to be talking to you again. I know that, you know, you and I have been working for a while and because of COVID. We, we literally just met earlier, like last week, I think, um, yes. you know, for uh-huh. the first time. And, you know, I one time when we were talking on the phone, I had said that um, your story is one that I'm never, ever going to forget. Um, and the what you and your family went through. Um, with this disease, and I hope I pronounced it right. Um, That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, I hope I got close. Um, and you know, it's it's such a powerful story. And I was just wondering if you would be able to just you know give us a little bit of the background. I mean, obviously it's a memoir, but you know, what kind of where did this come from for you? Well, when I was a very young woman, I was twenty two years old. And I gave birth to Craig, Craig Stephen Wood, and uh, in Easton. And when he was first born, I told the nurse, I said, the inside of his mouth looks raw or, or purplish looking. And she said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So as time went on, what the problem was is that he had no mucous membranes on the inside of his mouth. And it was calls from... The disorder, recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, but we like to call it RDEB because that's a whole lot easier to pronounce. <laughs> so, so, uh, so Craig was born almost eight pounds, and but he was unable to eat. So, I had to modify the way that he ate by like, um, of course, he could not nurse. There was no way he could nurse. So, and he couldn't really suck on a, on a bottle either. So I had to modify the nipples on the bottle and by uh, taking like um, a hot pin, hot needle, and I would burn the rubber to make the hole larger. And so instead of him actually sucking on it, he would open his mouth when he was crying and I would squeeze the bottle and the milk would go into his mouth that way and he would move his mouth in a suckling motion and he could actually eat that way. Uh, and finally he started gaining weight. So, um, we did, uh, at, when Craig was about three weeks old, we took him to Johns Hopkins and, uh, before we got there, I was told by a dermatologist in Easton, he said, uh, I said to him, I said, there isn't some kind of crazy disease that makes your skin fall off, is there? And he said, there is, but I've never seen it. And no doctor I know has ever seen it. So that's probably not it. He said, I think he has a condition called scalded skin syndrome, where it is like a bacterial infection. And they give him antibiotics. And then in a few days, it's supposed to clear up, but Craig's didn't clear up. So anyway, so we took him to Johns Hopkins and the doctor was in there and they did a a biopsy of Craig's skin. And it's called an electron microscopy. Mm 
and they do this biopsy and they look at the skin underneath the micro uh, the microphone uh, microscope and um, so they told me that he did have this skin disorder and I said you know when's the last time that you saw a patient with this and he said never he said the last patient we saw with this disorder at Johns Hopkins was 22 years ago so and me I was 22 years old so mm -hmm. at that time I had no I, I was a high school graduate I didn't know anything about medicine I didn't know anything about skin I hardly knew anything about babies I had one child uh -huh. um, but to think now that here I am I'm in Johns Hopkins and Craig is in there for eight days and now they're gonna send me home with this infant whose skin is just coming off in his mouth now it's coming off on his his elbows his knees his back everywhere he's just blistering and they're sending me home now while we were at johns hopkins they taught me how to bandage craig so uh people that have this condition are bandaged like um like a burn victim okay like somebody had burned you would see them with a lot of the white cotton bandages right and so uh he was uh, wrapped in that and so i had to do this every single day you had to be wrapped in these bandages but you, of course if you wrap them in the bandages then the next day you have to take them off and taking them off is an excruciating uh excruciating for pit for people who have this disorder because sometimes the bandages get stuck the sometimes their clothes actually get stuck to the wounds uh so you know and i did you know there's so many things that i learned through trial and error like i learned that you know you could see the blister starting they would be really small and you could see you could see them starting and so i said i told him i said i'm going to start popping these things so in blister so they don't they don't get bigger and they said no don't do that because he could get an infection and i'm like they're going to break anyway doesn't that open it up to infection i might as well do it myself when they're little so you know these are all the things that i learned through taking care of uh craig and you know i you know to write this book and to be able to share all this trial and error that i went through um figuring it out because there's only eight in ten million people that are born with this disease wow so when craig was um let's see craig was four years old then i had a daughter and I had gone to uh, Johns Hopkins again for genetic uh, counseling. And, you know, I want to know, is this going to happen again? And they said, it's so rare. I mean, the likelihood of this ever happened again. Of course, you know, they're never going to say never because they have to right. cover themselves. But they said, really, it's not going to happen again. So, but I was still worried when I was pregnant with my daughter. I worried, worried, worried. And then she was born. She was fine. So then when Craig was seven, Aaron was three, then I gave birth to Ryan and when he was born and he was started his first cry i looked in his mouth and he had a blood blister in his mouth and i knew right then that i had it again it and so you before. really became sort of like a i mean you know on the job training expert in an extremely rare disease and then you know it just changes everything for you um I remember, you know, having this conversation, um, you know, with my wife, Patty, when I was doing the layout work for your book. And mm -hmm. I remember saying, like, I can't imagine having a child, like an infant and the infant crying and you want to reach down and scoop up this baby to, you know, comfort them. But knowing that you could rip their skin off just by right. just by right. that. And I said, I can't imagine 
what you and your fam, I just, it's just one of those things that I, I mean, I, it, 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 it's really beyond words. Well, and the thing is, is that, and, and, and well-meaning people, uh, one day we went to this yard sale and it was just me and Craig. And I put Craig down and he was, you know, piddling around and walking around. And then he took off running. And of course, mom, he's just a little kid. I'm going to go and chase after him. And this lady is trying to be nice and she's going to catch him for me. And uh, she caught him for sure. And she scooped him up. But you can never pick up a child with EB from under the arms. If you pick them up from under the arms, the skin from their sides ends up in their armpits because of the fragility of how fragile the skin is. So what happens in a person that has this disorder, You, in your skin, you have an epidermis and you have a dermis. The epidermis being the top layer of your skin, the dermis being the lower layer of your skin. And between the epidermis and the dermis, you have uh, what's called anchoring fibrils and kind of like stitches, if you will. And these anchoring fibrils are made of collagen seven. So these uh, patients either are lacking collagen seven or they don't have collagen seven at all. And so there's no anchoring, there's no collagen seven. There's nothing to make the anchoring fibrils. So the epidermis is kind of just sitting on top of the dermis. So if there's any kind of friction to that epidermis, it will slide the epidermis, which then causes fluid to build up between. And that, and that's what makes a blister. And when you, when you were going through the, uh, the first child, Craig, um, how did it prepare you for this second? Like, what did you do differently? Were there things that you knew off the bat to do differently? Oh, yeah. First of all, <laughs> when the, the eating, okay, the bottle, I didn't have to, because when Craig was born, I had no idea what was going on. And they kept saying, just wait, some, baby, some babies take a little while to get the idea of nursing. And I know that that's true. And so, I, I okay, well, I'm going to wait and I'm going to wait. And then I kept, I kept calling the doctor and saying, he's still not, he's still not eating. And so he got jaundice. I had to take him back to the hospital. Then he was put in the incubator. And when they have jaundice, they put him under the lights in an incubator. And, uh, but it was really then that we found out that it wasn't just Craig's mucous membranes. It was his skin. I was sitting in a rocking chair and Craig was in an incubator across the room. And I was sitting in a rocking chair. Craig was in the incubator. He started crying. And I was going to take him out, and I thought, no, because I don't know how long they have to be in there for the therapeutic. For you know, so I don't want to take him out. Better, I better wait. And so I, I rang for the nurse, and before she came in there, Craig just let for a little person just let out the scream. And I looked into the incubator, and I could see that there was something red on the sheet. And I was like, you know, it's kind of hard to process when you're looking in there, and you said these infant, there's something red on the sheet. What the heck is going on? So the nurse went and opened up the incubator and flipped him over, and the blood was just running down his legs, and skin was crinkled up on his knees. and Yeah, it's sunburn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... When you started off with your with your next child, you had kind of a better plan, I guess. 
Yes. So I didn't have to wait to take him to Johns Hopkins for somebody to tell me to bandage him, for somebody to teach me to bandage him. So he didn't go through, you know, Craig was uh, three, three and a half weeks old before you took him to Hopkins. And so I didn't know how to treat him. I didn't know how to bandage him. I didn't, I didn't know anything. And I just, I just, I just knew that touching him, even running water over top of him, the pressure of the water just washed his skin right off. Mm -hmm. And so when I had Ryan, then right from the get go, he was one day old and I was already bandaging him. And I already knew that even for eating, like for uh, for when these babies, when they're going to uh, suck on the bottle, you have to wet the nipple first because it will actually adhere to the roof of their mouth and their tongue. And when you take it out, you take the skin with it. Because your mouth is always dry. Uh, no, it's not because the mouth is dry. It's because the uh, it's like almost like um, any kind of plastic. Anything that could be tacky, anything rubbery will just adhere to the skin. And if there's any, if you pull on it, it'll just pull the skin and you just oh, wow. it right off. So then um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your decision to write this book. Because um, I don't think when you were raising Craig and, and your daughter and, and Ryan that you necessarily maybe thought that you would end up writing a book. So can you tell me or tell us a little bit about how you came to the yeah. decision to like sit down and put all this on paper and to, and to go forward? Well, when I was 21 years old, this is a year before Craig was born, uh, my then husband and I bought a boat and we were in a bad boat accident out in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay with my oldest son at that time was only two years old. And uh, the boat went down, everything caught on fire and I was out in the Chesapeake Bay with a two-year-old. Uh, thought we were going to die. We floated on the board for a little while. Uh, eventually, I said my goodbyes to my husband, and he said his goodbyes to me. I said, I'm going to let go of this board, and I'm going to try to swim to shore. Of course, it's very loud out there because it's a storm, and there's you know so many other details. Um, but he was, you know, you're, you're going to drown if you, if you let go of the board, and I didn't see where I had any choice. So I let go of the board. We figure about 12, 12.30 in the afternoon. And I swam with a two-year-old in my left arm all day into the dust, into the night. Finally, we figure about 9 or 9.30 at night, I made it to shore. And so when people found out about that story, even before I had Craig, people said, you should write a book about that. So, uh, so then when Craig was born, and then all these episodes started happening, and all the things that I learned about taking care of a child with RDEB and how much I could help other moms through my trials and tribulations and through Craig's suffering, how much can I spare these other women, men, whoever is taking care of these kids, how much can I spare them from making the same unknowing mistakes that I made? I, I didn't, you know, I had, I had no idea that, you know, putting Craig underwater would rip his skin off. I mean, right. who would ever think, who would ever think that? And, you know, so many, so many other episodes that happened, like I told you that I, I broke the blisters Well, I took the kids to the beach and I always tried to get, stay away from people at the beach because people unknowingly say not very nice things about people who are different. And so I tried to keep them away from that kind of psychological happenings. So, um, so Craig that morning, I had broken some of the blisters on his feet. And so now there's 
holes where the skin is, but the skin is still intact. There's just little holes and there's no fluid. They're just laying flat, hopefully healing. And so Craig said, Mama, I think I want to put my feet in the water. And he never said that to me before. So he was, I guess he was eight years old. And so I said, okay, so let's take the bandages off of your feet and we're going to stand in the water at the edge. And the water's going to come up. And you know how you stand there and it gradually buries your feet. So we're standing there and I'm like just marveling that this boy can now stand in the water. I mean, it seems so simple to everyone else, right. but, it's a, but it was a big deal to me and to Craig. And so, you know, finally he's like, okay, I've had enough. I want, I want to go play up in the sand with Aaron. So I said, okay, so you've got to be very careful, wiggle your toes a little bit to loosen up the sand. And then you can take your feet out because I knew the sand would tear his skin up if we didn't right. loosen it up first. So he wiggled his toes and took his feet out. No grimacing. I knew he wasn't in any kind of pain. And so I was like, okay, good. Then I looked at his feet and I was like, I couldn't comprehend what I was looking at. What had happened is that the water in the sand washed up over his feet. The water went away, but left the sand in the skin where I had popped the blisters and reflated, if you will, the wow. skin with sand. So now his feet were covered in what looked like half-sized marbles made of sand. Now, how would anybody ever know or even think that that would happen? Right. I would never think. So if I can, so that's my whole a big reason why I wrote this book is that I can bring awareness to moms of what to do, what not to do, and the mistakes that I made. And so those mistakes that I made with Craig, I mean, even even not even just for those other moms, but the mistakes I made with Craig, I didn't make those mistakes with Ryan. Right. A huge learning curve. When, uh, yeah, internally curve. when you decided to sit down and actually start writing, did you work from an outline? What was your, what was your like organizational process or did you just sit down and start typing? Uh, no, I had uh, calendars that had like the doctor's appointments on there, the doctor's names, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a timeline, but that was years ago. That was after, cause Craig did pass away from his disorder. And so, and that was after Craig passed away. And my intent was that I probably will write a book and I would take it out and I would start working on it, but it was so painful. I would put it back. And months would go by, years would go by. I'd take it out, start working. I can't, I can't do it. So then when I, I met my husband in 2016 and he read the outline or the timeline and he said, you could really help a lot of people with this, not even just kids with, with the skin disorder, but there's all kinds of moms who, and dads who are taking care of kids. And it's very challenging because when the kids are different and they're handicapped, you still have the regular life stresses that go on. And then on top of that, now you have all these other stresses that really make it difficult. So I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm, you know, my life is so great now. I have this, you know, this peace, love and happiness thing that's going on. <laughs> I'm just loving it. And I don't know that I really want to disrupt it. So he just lovingly uh, encouraged me every single day, 20 times a day, maybe 30 <laughs> to go ahead and <laughs> to go ahead and start writing. So I did, and um, it was pretty painful. It was oh, pretty painful. It was pretty painful, but um, I'm seeing now how helping other people, because I've gotten so many messages 
so much positive feedback from people that are already saying, thank you for helping me. I didn't know this, or I didn't know that, or I've never heard of this disease before. How can I help? What can I do? So through all of that, even though it was so painful to kind of relive it and write it, my heart feels so much better. Yeah. Feels so yeah. much better. And then I know that, um, Another link you and I have in common is our editor. Uh, so yes. I used uh, Bill Cecil to edit my book, Chasing Alice. And I know that he was um, a big help for you. And so, you know, because it's one thing to write a book and then it's another thing to give it to an editor and say, okay, I need this to be the best that it can be. And right. I know that you worked with Bill. Um, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that process of like working with an editor and, and how, cause I know you and I talked about, you know, how we feel like it really was very helpful for us. Yeah, it was very helpful. And I, you know, the thing is, is that when I was writing stuffing cotton, I lived it. So I already knew what the next part of the story was. So when I took it to Bill, he's like, you know, I need some road signs. I don't know how you got here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what he said to me. I don't know how many times. Uh, you're missing a road sign here. You're missing a road sign here. How did you get from this hospital to home? I mean, did you fly? I mean, what happened? <laughs> so, uh, so that was very, that was very helpful. I don't see this would have never happened without Bill, without his encouragement. I know that sometimes, you know, people they send their draft or even their first or second. And then they see all the marks, all the pages, you got 250 pages and you have all these marks on there and you're like back in English class with all the red marks all over your paper. And so it can be very discouraging, but Bill was, you got to keep going. We're going to do this again. I'm like, okay. He said, and then we're probably going to do it again. I'm like, oh dear. But <laughs> I kept going on and I kept going. And even when I was done that, poor Stephanie, I don't know how many times I would, send you an email. Stephanie, I found another typo. <laughs> but you were great about it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's one of those things when, you know, you, like, I believe in your story, you know, and I believe in the work that you were doing and, you know, in the conversations that you and I had, like, I knew that you had a really powerful story that you wanted to tell. And I knew that um, you had done a lot of really critical work with Bill to make it the best that it could be. So, you know, it was a, you know, I always thought, it, I always felt like it was a privilege to help bring it to oh, life because I know, I do know that this book is going to help other people, um, you know, other moms, other people. Cause I mean, you, you do conferences, you know, where like doctors invite you to the conference to say, Hey, talk about this disease, please. You know? Right. So I know that it, it's, it's going to be impactful. And, um, I've always believed in, in, you know, what you were doing with this. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I do. It is, it is my hope and prayer that I can just reach people when they feel like they're, you know, because think about, I was 22 years old. I was so alone. I was so isolated. And through the book, I refer back to the first two chapters that are the boat accident. And when I was out in the Chesapeake Bay and I was swimming with my two-year-old in my left arm, you don't know loneliness till you're there. Nobody knew where I was. Nobody had any idea except that I was missing. I was supposed to go to bowling that night. Of course, I never showed up to my bowling. And I was like, mm. where is she? And my mom and my sister were on that bowling team. And they knew that we had just bought a boat. And we were bringing it home. And nobody heard from us. So my biggest fear when I was out there was that 
I was going to die from exhaustion because you get to the point where it's not your physical anymore. You, you don't have any strength left. It is your mind that keeps you going. And my fear was that I was going to die from exhaustion. And my son, Brandon, who's in my left arm, is going to still be alive. And he's just going to float out into the bay and what is going to happen. And so I refer to that kind of threaded through the book about how I felt when I was out there and how alone that I was and how fearful I was. And that same kind of emotion when I was with Craig and nobody could tell me anything and I felt so alone and so isolated. Um, I wanted to go just back uh, a step to, um, to your, to your editing process. I'm trying to be less snarky online and I've succeeded kind of, um, but I'm in this writer's group and someone says, someone had said, you know, we don't need suggestions. We need, you know, step, step-by-step -step directions. And what I wrote and then deleted was sit down and type, print it out, read it, edit it, sit down and type again, print it out, read it, edit it. Sit, just keep doing that. And then after that, get an editor. Right. And sit down, type, read it, revise. I mean, it's just the, the revision process is just, I mean, it's brutal, but it's critical. It is critical. But I say people ask me about that. And my response is, it's maddening. <laughs> it's maddening. Yeah. Because it's over and over again. And if you're not willing to do that, it's never going to be the piece of work that you want. You have to be willing to sacrifice that. I, well, of course, I'm a documentarian. That's what I work for a, a head and neck cancer surgeon. I'm a scribe, but he calls me his documentarian. So that's what I do. I write all day long for eight hours, yeah. nine hours. <clears throat> and so I would get up in the morning, I would drive to Salisbury. I would work, write all day for nine hours, come home, fix dinner, run upstairs, 30-minute workout, come down to the dining room table to start writing. And the hardest part was just ripping that cover off my heart yeah. to, get, to get to the heart of it because if I didn't, you know, I, you can't just tell the skeleton. you got to tell details. Yeah. And that was the hard part was reliving those details and going back over that timeline. So, but you're right. If you're, if with, with, uh, with editing, I bet you I went, this is no kidding. I, I know that I went over it 20 times. I know yeah. that I did. Yeah. Maybe yeah, more. I, think, I think when you and I were talking one time on the phone, we were having this conversation about the fact that you write it and then you rewrite it and you rewrite it and you rewrite it. And I was like, I think writing is just rewriting. Like, it's just, yeah. like, it's just, you know, honing that over and over. And I think it was James Baldwin who said something along the lines of, like, the point is to write a sentence as clean as a bone. And that's, yeah. you know, what you're trying to, you're trying to constantly go back over it and go back over it. And if you're not willing to do that work, and I especially feel like with the story that you had to tell, it is such a powerful story. And it's such a, it's a story, like you said, no one's ever, people don't know about this disease. It doesn't even seem like a fathomable thing, you know. Right. So in order, I mean, you, it's such a powerful story and you have to do it justice and doing it justice is sitting down with an editor and doing it and going and banging and banging and keep keeping at it until you come away with something that's like, it just works. Yeah. And so, and also in, I had to get across who Craig was. Yes. So Craig was not what you would expect. 
Craig, instead of boo-hooing about his disorder and crying about it and why me, poor me, instead, he turned it around and used it for positive. Like, I would say, why? I don't know why this has happened. Why, why, why? And Craig was like, why does it matter now, mom? Why does it matter? What are we going to do with what's happened is what matters. And how are we going to help people? And how are we going to make their life better? What are we going to do? Does, does why matter? And he had a good point. Did it really matter why at that point? No, we had to deal with it. Right. So Craig, by the time he was 14 years old, he was standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the same spot Martin Luther King stood, this 14-year-old boy talking to people about his faith and how he gets up and faces his disorder every single day and how grateful he is. Um, we are actually kind of coming up against it, so I don't want to ask too leading a question, but now that the book is done, what are you doing to, to get it out there? You, you said, did you speak at medical conferences sometimes? Do you, do you speak other places? Uh, well, that was like many years ago that oh. I, that, that I did that. Um, so I've been on the radio a few times. Uh, WBOC is actually running a piece on me. I think it's probably airing right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, they came here and interviewed me for like three hours. So uh, that was neat. And my husband is my marketing uh, manager, and he's doing a great job. He's been marketing for, I don't know how many years, honey, 25 years, <laughs> 25 years. My daughter's in radio. Uh, so they're, uh, they're putting together all the campaigning and they're doing it. They're doing a wonderful job. And it's, it's been doing, they've been doing well on Amazon and, uh, people have, uh, you know, people have contacted me through, you know, various media, uh, ask me questions, how can I get the book? So on and so forth. And how can people get the book? Uh, people can get the book from saltwater media. They could get it from Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and I thought I saw the other day where Target has picked it up. And then, Possibly, yeah, uh, yeah and, dot org. Uh, yep, and Stephanie probably knows more places where it is than <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere you can buy a really good book, you can buy Christine's book. So, yeah. but visit your local bookstores. We always like to support our indie bookstores yes. too. So. Actually, a lot of people have done that. Uh, some people ordered it um, from uh, Lewis. Uh, is that browse about books? Yep, browse about books in in, in uh, Rehoboth, Rehoboth, and then there's yeah, and, and then uh, uh, Bethany Beach Books in Bethany, and yeah, I think a couple yeah. people ordered it from there, so which is great to uh, support our local businesses. Absolutely. So tomorrow, our Saturday, I'm doing uh, my debut at the Atlantic Hotel in the Garden, right between the Atlantic Hotel and the Globe. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we're going to be doing that in the garden. The radio station is going to be there. 103.5 is going to be there. Very and cool. Yeah, so that's, so that's pretty cool. I'm doing a little yeah. garden. That would be nice. Awesome. All right, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Oh, my gosh. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking with us about your book. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. You got it. So What's Your Story it was produced by Saltwater Media an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit them at www.saltwatermedia.com. You can find the podcast page at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com where we have links to the author's work and short bios and lots of other fun stuff. You can also reach us via email and social there. Tell your story.